You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball, my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing London Stock Exchange, Rent-A-Kill, Schroeder's, Rathbones, Prudential, M&G, and Mercado Libre. So, John, do you want to kick us off with London Stock Exchange? Yes. So the London Stock Exchange, they had the full year results out for 2020. Total revenue was up 3% to 2.12 billion compared with 2.05 billion in 2019. And a total income up 6% to 2.44 billion, which is up from 2.31 billion from 2019. And it's up 5% on a constant currency basis. The FTSE Russell revenue up 3% to 688 million from 649 million, with growth in subscription revenues offset by a decline in asset based revenues. Post trade revenue was up 7% to 751 million from 700 million in 2019. That was driven by a strong growth in the London Clearinghouse, record activity in CDS, which is the credit default swaps, foreign exchange, and cash equities clearing. Total income up 12% to 1.07 billion from 955 million in 2019. Capital markets revenue broadly flat at 427 million. However, adjusted operating expenses before depreciation and amortization were up 6% to 887 million. And that resulted in adjusting operating profit up 5% to 1.18 billion from 1.065 billion in 2019. And the group proposed a final dividend of 51.7 pence per share, which raises the full year dividend to 75p per share. The group also acquired Renativ, which is the data analytics company. And the, day, and the chief executive, David Swimmer, commented, the completion of the acquisition of Renativ in early 2021 marked an important milestone in the London Stock Exchange Group's history. The transformational transaction brings together two highly complementary global businesses with a shared commitment to open access. The London Stock Exchange Group is now truly global with a significant presence in North America, Europe, Asia and the emerging markets, bringing together exceptional skills and experience at scale. While early days, the work we've done so far confirms the quality of the business and the extent of the opportunities across the group as we focus on the integration and delivering the strategic and financial benefits of the transaction to our customers, shareholders, and other stakeholders. London Stock Exchange Group is well positioned for long-term sustainable growth in a continually evolving landscape as a leading global financial markets infrastructure and data provider. They were some of the highlights um, from the 2020 result. Have you got any thoughts on the London Stock Exchange as a company, Sam? I thought they were decent results. I mean, well, it's basically mid-single-digit growth all round. I don't know if I maybe would have expected a little bit more just because you'd expect there to have been so much more trading activity during the year. I, I don't know. I, I thought that would have maybe benefited them a bit more, but I like the business model. I like the company. The financials, if you look at the last five years, are quite impressive. So, for example, from 2016 to 2020 inclusive, revenue's grown from 1.515 billion to 2.124 billion. And earnings per share has 
pretty much doubled in that time as well. My and only the share issue, price along with that too. Yeah, that's that's my issue with it. I think it's quite pricey now. So it's at a PE of 37 and a valuation of 37 billion. And for a company that's growing in mid-single digits, 37 is very expensive, I think. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it, it does have a huge competitive advantage and a lot of the participants don't really have any choice but to use its services. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's the valuation that you might struggle with. I think the shares have pulled back a bit in the last week or so. But is it, is it I suppose, is it a low enough entry point? Would it be a low enough entry point for you? No, so they're, they're down 19% for the week, but they're up 8% for the year. 70% over two years, 100% over three years, and 177% over five years. I do like the business. I think it's a very, very attractive business model. Like you say, it's it's got a huge competitive advantage. It's got a strong moat. But I, I, I wouldn't be comfortable paying 37 times earnings <laughs> for a company that's growing at, call it, 6% a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I'd probably be in the same boat. I, I'd like to watch it. And certainly if it pulled back a bit, I might be more, because, you know, well, it's pulled back a bit already, but pulled back a bit more. Then if I, I could cut in be... half, I'd be interested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure whether we'll see that happen, but it's going on my watch list for sure. But yeah, not, not one, not like right move that I went out and actually bought last week. Okay. So what do we have next? So next we can do rent a kill initial. This is a business I don't know anything about. So do you want to just explain a bit uh, about what the business does? I'm going to start at the very beginning. (laughs) Okay. The company was founded in 1925 by Harold Maxwell Leafroy, professor of entomology at Imperial College London, who had been investigating ways to kill death watch beetles that infested Westminster Hall in the Palace of Westminster. Leafroy and his assistant produced an anti-woodworm fluid called Enterkill Fluids, that year, he tried to register the name Enterkill, but due to existing trademarks, he chose rent. He chose Rent-A-Kill instead, and that became the name of the company. However, unfortunately, on the 14th of October 1925, Leafroy was killed in a laboratory when an experiment produced poisonous fumes. <laughs> Quite an interesting beginning. I love the story. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Rent-A-Kill is the world's largest pest control company. They are a global company, so they operate in Europe, UK, Asia, North America, Asia Pacific, and the company's business includes pest control, hygiene, workwear, and they've also got another element, and they offer a range of pest services from rodents to flying insects and other forms of wildlife management. The initial hygiene is just the hygiene business, and the workwear performs workwear, provides workwear in Europe, and the other includes basically other specialist services, so plants, medical services, property care and specialist hygiene. So they've come out with their full year results. This is actually a company that Brummy Investor asked us to look at, by the way. Oh, is it, is it FTSE 250? It's FTSE 100. Oh, it's a big it? boy. Yes, yeah, 8.62 okay. billion, the market cap. Okay. So just for some of the figures, revenue was up 4% year over year to point. 823 billion with ongoing revenue up 5% for the year to 2.809 billion. Adjusted operating profit was up 5.1% to 384 million. 
adjusted profit before tax was at 4.2% to 355 million. Profit before tax was down 32.1% to 229.8 million. The adjustments are to do with restructuring costs. So it's costs associated with acquisitions that are one-off in nature. So if you strip those out, the profit before tax is up 4.2%. And the adjusted earnings per share was up 6.5% to 15.37p a share, with the actual earnings per share at 10.03p a share, which was a 34% drop. Because it's a global business, if you measure, if you take those rules and measure them at constant exchange rates, the ongoing revenue actually grew at 6.3%. So they've been adversely affected by currency movements during the year. So for the 6.3% increase in ongoing revenue, that was made up of a 1% growth in pest control, which they said reflected their essential service status and ability to continue to serve customers. And they believe they're strongly positioned for structural growth as they transition out of the pandemic. The hygiene division was up 36.8%, and that reflected continued high demand for hygiene products and disinfection services. The protect and enhance division was down 12%, which was principally driven down by COVID impacted performance. So that's, that's the workwear division. So there's obviously less people. Well, there's been less work done during the year, hasn't there, I guess. Mm. So the revenue in North America was $1.585 billion, and that was ahead of the $1.5 billion target. And they said they're making good progress to the, towards their goal of 18% profit margins, with the margins for 2020 at 17.3%. They highlighted that their hygiene category expanded into 20 new markets in 2020, and they've recommended a dividend payment of... 5.41p a share, which is about a 1.2% yield. CEO Andy Ranson said, in an extraordinary year, we've demonstrated the inherent strength of our business, growing revenue, profit, and cash. We've shown great agility by launching new disinfection services in 60 countries to address a critical need for customers, accelerated the international expansion of our hygiene business and have acquired 23 high-quality businesses to build density, particularly in our key North America pest control market. Notwithstanding the impacts from business closures and lockdown, pest control continues to exhibit good structural growth drivers. As the world's largest commercial pest control company, Rentakill is ideally placed to capitalise on the opportunities presented in a post-vaccine world. The medium-term prospects for our hygiene business have never looked more promising as demand for global hygiene services is sustained post the pandemic and its innovation, digital leadership and its expertise inside and outside of the washroom mean we are targeting medium underlying organic growth in core hygiene comparable to that in pest control at 4 to 6% from 2022. In terms of the regional performance, North America was the best performing region and North America rate makes up 44% of the group revenues and 44% of the group profit. So in North America, ongoing revenue in the region grew by 14.5% to 1.239 billion pounds, but that's $1.585 billion as mentioned earlier. Revenues from total pest control increased by 3.1% to 1.018 billion with pest services revenue increasing by 6.5% reflecting good demand from residential customers. 
Ongoing operating profit growth 39.9% reflects revenue growth in pest control, launch of new disinfectant services and rapid and effective cost control to offset the impact of the crisis. In Europe, which makes up 25% of group revenue and 26% of group profit, we said the region saw a mixed impact from the crisis, with some countries being less impacted due to early and effective lockdowns, such as Germany. And other countries, including France and southern part, parts of southern Europe, being more severely impacted. In Latin America, which is for some reason included in the Europe segment, I'm not sure why. While revenues in pest control declined, overall performance for the year was aided by disinfection sales. Hygiene was the region's best performing category with good contributions from disinfection and products. Regional ongoing revenue for Europe rose by 2.5% in the year, reflecting good growth in Germany, which was 10.7%, Latin America, 15.2%, Southern Europe, 5.3%, and Benelux, 0.5%, but was held back by a revenue decline of 3.2% in France. Hygiene grew 22.3% in 2020, whilst pest control declined 0.4%. Ongoing operating profit declined 4.1%, with good growth in Germany, plus 24.5%, offset by declines elsewhere, most notably France. In the UK and rest of the world region, which makes up 16% of group revenue and 17% of group profit, they were significantly affected by the crisis, particularly in April, which was the peak of the crisis for the group as a whole. The UK and Ireland hygiene businesses have been unable to serve customers within many sectors. UK pest control also saw revenue declines in 2020, reflecting temporary business closures and suspensions. In contrast, specialist hygiene, medical and products businesses have performed well, benefiting from increased disinfection sales. Ongoing revenue for UK and rest of the world decreased by 2.2%, with UK declines in UK and Ireland hygiene and pest control, which were down 20.2% and 8.5% respectively, partially offset by growth in the rest of the world operations, which grew by 5.3% in the year. Nordics plus 8.7%. MENA as it looks like Menat's Middle East, Menat plus 12.8%, and Sub-Saharan Africa plus 4.4%, reflecting the benefit of disinfection sales. In the UK, revenues have been supported by new products and services and contract wins for the provision of connected pest control systems. This includes our largest pest connect contract to date for Tesco, for whom we've installed units across the majority of its UK footprint. Regional ongoing operating profit reduced by 16.2% in 2020 reflecting bad debt provisions and the cost of increased PPE. In the Asia region, which is 9% of group revenues and 6% of group profit, China, Hong Kong and South Korea were among the first countries to be impacted by the crisis and as a result, the first to recover. Strong demand for disinfection and hygiene product sales offsetting falls in contract revenue from other countries. Regional ongoing revenue rose by 3.7%, aided by strong performance from Indonesia, which was up 28.1%, Hong Kong up 18.4%, and South Korea up 21.9%, but held back by India, which was down 15.8%, and Malaysia, which was down 5.2%. Ongoing operating profit increased by 10.1%. In the Pacific region, which makes up 6% of revenue and 7% of profit, ongoing revenues decreased by 2.6%, with all operations impacted by the crisis as a result of government restrictions, particularly in New Zealand, which entered into extreme lockdown in late March. Pest control revenue in the region fell by 1.3%, while hygiene declined by 2.6%. Ongoing operating profit reduced by 8.7%, reflecting lower revenues. And there are a couple of slides as well in the presentation that I thought were interesting. Yeah, so they've talked about the pest control business and they've referred to it as cash compounding subscription both growth business. 
So they've said 70% of the portfolio is subscription with high levels of customer retention at 84.4%. They've said that postcode density and customer penetration density drive strong operating margins at 17.7%. They've highlighted it's highly cash generative and has a high return on investment. And it's low CapEx intensive. So capital expenditure to revenue is only 4.6% as a four-year average. And they've highlighted that it's a highly fragmented market, which gives them a lot of opportunity for mergers and acquisitions, especially as the biggest player. And they've highlighted they expect market growth to be driven by growing middle classes, urbanization and legislation. And they're expecting global growth annually of 5%. And they also refer to the hygiene business as a cash compound in subscription, but growth business too. And they've pointed out that 95% of the portfolio is subscription business with high levels of customer retention at 86.1%. Again, they've highlighted the postcode density resulting in strong operating margins of 16.2%. CapEx to revenue is 12.9% as a four-year average. And again, it's highly fragmented and required by laws and regulations. In terms of the valuation, the market cap is 8.62 billion and it trades at a PE ratio of 30.47 and has a dividend yield of 1.16%. John, thoughts on Rentacale? So it's a company that prior to this I knew nothing about. I mean, I think the results are quite good. I suppose the difficulty I might have with it is it's quite expensive. And do these sort of acquisitions and expand international expansion, does that pay off? And because it, it sounds like it could be something that could be quite risky being in so many markets as a potentially, well, I don't know how big a, a player it is or the market share that it has in, in some of those regions, but as a British business going abroad, can it succeed or, you know, will it get, get its fingers burned? And it's not, it, you know, 30 times earnings, not cheap, but some of the, you know, the real positives having so such a high retention rate on some of these subscription services sounds very lucrative. I think it's probably a company I need to do more research into, but not one that I dislike on first, you know, at first glance. Yeah, I, I thought it was quite interesting. I, I was the same as you. I wouldn't have expected it to be such a high subscription business. The only thing is they, they are quite acquisitive. And if you look at the last five years of figures, revenues increased from 2.168 billion to 2.823 billion. But that's not really fed through to earnings per share. Mm, I, yeah. I guess maybe the earnings per share is almost distorted by the fact that they're still they're still growing. But yeah, I, I do think it looks quite expensive, but it does look like an interesting business, I do think. Certainly more interesting than I I would have initially expected it to be. Is it one yeah. that you consider? Not at the minute. It's one that okay. I'd come back to and have another look at, I think. But it looked yeah. like a good business, but it's, it was just a valuation for me, really. And, and I, I guess the, the, the last five years of financials, although, although the revenue growth's good, I think I'd have wanted it to have fed through maybe into earnings a bit more. Okay, yeah, fine. I, right. you know, I, think, I, think, I think it's a yeah, reasonable analysis of it, you know. Should we do Schroeder's and Rathbone's next? Yeah, can do. So Rathbone Brothers... I'll start with them. They've released their full year results. Last time we covered Rathbones on the show, they just released their Q3 results and they reported a 0.2% increase in assets under management's 50.2 billion, which was made up of 41.8 billion for the investment management business and 
8.7 billion for the unit trust management business, which is basically funds. And that was a 2.2% growth rate. So I start with the CEO, Paul Stockton, in his statement, he said, funds under management and administration grew by 8.5% to reach 54.7 billion at 31 December 2020, reflecting both strong investment performance and growth. Underlying profit before tax increased 4.3% to 92.5 million, delivering an underlying operating margin of 25.3% that was consistent with the prior year, despite lower investment markets. As a consequence, the board is announcing a final 2020 dividend of 47p a share, which brings the total dividend to 72 pence per share, an increase of 2.9% over 2019. 2020 marks the 11th consecutive year in which we have increased our total annual dividend. So in the financial highlights, total funds under management reached 54.7 billion, which was up 8.5% from 50.4 billion in the, in the year before. And that's made up of 44.9 billion in the investment management business, which was up 4.4%, and 9.8 billion in the funds business, which was up 32.4%. Total net inflows across the group were 2.1 billion, and that was up from 0.6 billion in 2019, and that represented a growth rate of 4.2%. Gross organic inflows in investment management were consistent at 3.3 billion in 2020, which was the same as the prior year. Acquired inflows of 0.6 billion investment management largely reflect the transfer of assets from Barclays Wealth. Investment management outflows for the year totaled 3.3 billion, and that was down from 3.9 billion in the prior year. Net inflows in the funds business were 1.5 billion, and that was up from 0.9 billion in the year before. Profit before tax for the 12 months of 31 December 2020 was 43.8 million, and that was up from 39.7 million a year ago. Basics earning per, earnings per share totaled 49.6p, and that was down slightly from 50.3p a year ago. Operating income totaled 366 million, which was 5.2% ahead of the prior year. Operating income in the investment management business was 320.6 million, which was up 3.1% year over year. And operating income in the funds business was 45.4 million, which was up 22% year over year. The underlying profit before tax totaled 92.5 million, and that was an increase of 4.3% year over year. And the underlying operating margin was 25.3%, and that was down slightly from 25.5% last year. And the underlying earnings per share were 133.3p a share, which was up from 132.8p a year ago. So there are a few things as well in the slides that I wanted to talk about. So they've highlighted that their funds under management growth is ahead of the market. So they're growing market share at the minute. In the investment management side of the business, they highlighted that outflows from closed accounts reduced by 27.8%. And the retention rate improved to 92.3%, and that's up from 89.9% a year ago. In the funds business, they highlighted the increase of 32.4% for funds under management to 9.8 billion. And they said that single strategy funds grew by 28.6% to 8.1 billion, and multi-asset funds grew by 54.5% to 1.7 billion. Uh, the ninth biggest player in the UK for net retail unit trust sales for 2020 and 2019. In the client service recognition and awards section, so this is based on a client experience survey based on 
8,300 individuals across 12 wealth management firms. Rathbone's ranked number one for overall client satisfaction. They ranked number one in 10 of the 14 survey key performance indicators. They outperformed the benchmark on 13 out of the 14 key performance indicators. They had a net promoter score of 60% compared to a benchmark score of 38%. And they've highlighted that the total size of the wealth management, UK wealth management business is 1.6 trillion. And they have currently a 3.2% market share of the UK wealth management market and a 13.7% market share of the independent wealth management market. So in terms of the valuation, they are valued at £951 million and that puts them at a PE ratio of 12 and a dividend yield of 4.42%. Thoughts on Rathbones, John? I mean, it seems to continue to do well. I always sort of struggle with some of the well companies like Rathbone, Schroeder, some of the investment managers, when I think you've got such good passive funds that are, you know, uh, passive funds available very cheaply through platforms like Vanguard, that more people don't adopt them. And then you've got sort of some of the more low cost trading apps like Trading212, Free Trade coming through. And despite this, Rathbone, Schroeder, they seem to be very resilient to them. I still don't fully understand why that is. It, it could be maybe people just aren't satisfied with doing the index. They want to be able to do better. And if you've got a strong brand like Rathbones that's been around for the last 300 years, that probably counts for a lot. But, you know, the, the numbers, I think, are sort of haven't disappointed and the valuation isn't unreasonable. So I suppose on that basis, it's, it looks like a, sort of a good a quality, quality company. What are your thoughts on the investment managers and Rathbones in particular, Sam? I mean, as a sector, it's probably, we'll see it when we get to Schroeder's as well, but as a sector, it is very attractively priced, I think. Yeah. Rathbones, I think those are very good results. I think it's all the figures are moving in the direction you'd want them to move in. They're gaining market share and they are still you know, 3.2% market share. They've got a lot of room to grow if they can continue putting those kinds of numbers up. To get that with a... 4.42% dividend yield in a P of 12. It just, it's, yeah. I, yeah. I genuinely, I, I don't understand why it's so cheap. So I actually tried to come up with some reasons. The only thing I could really think of is obviously you've got, you've got the issue of like companies like Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and like you said, the Vanguards. But I mean, the Vanguards, they've been around for years now. Yeah. Hargreaves, Lansdowne is a bit newer, but even still, the market is so big that I don't know how effective they'll actually be. The only thing I thought of is maybe, is it a cyclical? I guess it kind of is. Because at yeah. the minute, it, if we get into an environment where prices are going down a lot more, interest rates are going up, mm. you, you, you would expect the numbers to become quite unattractive quite quickly. So I guess it's a bit like a house builder where when you're at the top of the cycle, it's priced at a very low PE ratio because people know what can happen to those earnings quite quickly. But... I mean, that's, mm. I, I'm trying to play devil's advocate, really. But to be honest, I, I think a PE of 12 is very, very reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it certainly, sat, it, it, it certainly, I think from the results and yeah, price earnings of 12, it is, it is very attractively priced. Do you think longer term, do you think there's going to be any change or move towards or further away from passive, you know, your vanguards and your sort of BlackRock iShares? 
or do you think we're Rathbones and Schroders are always going to have a place and it's not necessarily they're not going to be squeezed out of the market? I don't think they'll be squeezed out. I'd be surprised if in 20 years' time they don't have a smaller market share than they do now. Mm-hmm. But if the market continues to grow anyway, that doesn't mean that they can't still do well. And I do think that, I mean, even something like a Vanguard where it's passive, it does take quite a lot of, like, I guess, financial awareness and, like, mm. to actually set, like, most people don't, wouldn't even go to the trouble of setting up a passive index fund. If they yeah. inherit, like, if, if most people, you know, inherited a million pounds tomorrow, what would they actually try and do with it? Because with a lot of people, yeah. like, I, I think it'd be a very small minority that say, well, I'm going to put it in a passive index fund. They're actually <laughs> aware enough to do that. I think you'd yeah. either have people that decide they're going to go and start trading on Robinhood. Yeah. Or, or in the UK, just, trading two-on-two or yeah. free trade. Or yeah. you're going to have people that just put their hands up and say, I don't know what to do with this. I want to give it to a professional. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think and then Rathbone, Schroders, they're some obvious choices. I think so, yeah. And I think there's always going, to, even though more younger people are using Hargreaves Lansdowne, and as they get older, Hargreaves Lansdowne's market share is expected to grow with the wealth of their users. I mm. still think there's always going to be that market for people who they've, 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 they've either got money and they just want to trust a professional, or they've come into some money and they don't know what to do with it. And again, they want to go to a professional. I think it's that peace of mind element, really. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But we'll see. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think, yeah, it's, they're both, well, we'll come on to Schroeder's in a minute. Do you, do you, should we start with that? Just yeah, I'll jump on into Schroeder's now, yeah. yeah. So Schroeder's, which are another wealth manager, so they've released their full year results as well. And in their highlights, they've highlighted strong investment performance with 75% of assets outperforming over one year, 72% over three years, and 81% over five years, demonstrating the value of, active investment managers for clients we generated net flows of 42.5 billion so it's just for reference Schroders is about 10 times the size of Rathbones so net flows of 42.5 billion and assets under management increased 15 percent up from 500.2 billion in 2019 to a record high of 574.4 billion our partnerships predominantly in Asia generated a further 12.4 billion of net inflows which increased the total net flows to 54.9 billion. Assets under management, including partnerships, reached 63 billion. So for 2020, net income was 2.179 billion, and that was up from 2.124 billion a year ago. Operating expenses was 1.476 billion, and that was up from 1.423 billion a year ago. Profit before tax was 612 million, and that was down from 624 million a year ago. And basic earnings per share was 172.4p, and that was down from 178.9p a year ago. However, if you adjust for exceptional items, it was 200.8p, and that was down slightly from 201.6p a year ago. And the total dividend remained at 114p a share. Peter Harrison, the CEO, commented, Assets under management have increased 15% to reach a record high of 574.4 billion. We generated net inflows of 42.5 billion with strong demand in our private assets, wealth management, and solutions business. These higher growth areas now account for 54% of our assets under management. Our geographic diversification continued with our US business reaching a milestone of more than 100 billion of assets under management. That's dollars. 
We also continued to expand in Asia through our growing network of partnerships, which contributed strongly to the group in 2020. There's a slide from the presentation that was interesting, and that just highlighted that the their asset under management growth in China was 25%, which ranked 15th out of 139 peers in China. And their assets under management growth in India was 42%. And they're now the seventh largest mutual fund business in India. In terms of the valuation, they're at a market cap of 6.61 billion. So it's more like only seven times the size of Rathbones rather than 10. They've got a PE ratio of 11.93 and a dividend yield of 4.87. John, thoughts on Schroeder's? I, to be honest, probably very similar to the thoughts on Rathbones. I think, again decent numbers and a very high quality business. I don't know whether it's the same for Rathbones as it is with Schroeder's, but I think the Schroeder family still own almost half the company and they're still on the board, which a lot of people would say from sort of, uh, it, it, you know, is a positive thing. And they've got sort of long-term thinking as a result or long-term strategy. But yeah, I mean, I think they're both certainly on paper despite sort of, you know, being potentially being cyclical and sort of headwinds coming from the sort of passive investment uh, movement, they still do very well. And they're not, they're not expensive for, for that, that sort of do performance. Have, do you have a preference between the two? What did you say the valuation was of Schroeder, sorry? 6.61. So the PE was 11.93, and that compares to a Rathbone's PE of 12.21. Dividend yield for Schroeder is 4.87 compared to 4.42 for Rathbones. Potentially, I'd go for the bigger player, Schroeder's. I know the other thing with Schroeder's is they've had they had a tie-up, I think, was it with what was Lloyd's sort of, uh, Lloyd's Bank, their wealth management division. So I think that's brought in quite a lot of new clients. I'd pro- probably go with Schroeder's, but I think, you know, both are, both are good. I'd go with Rathbones. <laughs> I thought the results were a little bit better from Rathbones. And so just, do you think more, potentially more room to grow there? Yeah, I think so. But I like them both. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And do you have either in your portfolio? I don't. I do you, genuinely yeah. find Rathbones quite tempting at the minute there. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's I, I, I can see why. Well, I think <laughs> both, a, I, I, have, I have neither and I think I, I'd like the look of them both. Yeah. Despite, every, you know, Everything we've, you know. I mean, you could always take a basket approach because another one that we've not covered it this week, but Brewing Dolphin, that's also quite attractively valued. And that's a similar market cap to Rathbones, I think. It is, yeah. So you could just, you could just buy all three, couldn't you? And just do it as a bit of an industry play. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You could, could even buy them on free trade. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So next we've got Prudential. So that's one of the UK's largest insurers. They came out with their full year results for 2020, largely positive. So underlying profits were up 14% in the core Asian business at a constant exchange rate to $3.7 billion, reflecting strong performance from the life insurance business and growth in the funds under management at Prudential's asset, Asian asset management arm, which is called East Spring. Assets under management there rose 3% to a total of $247.8 billion. In the US division, Jackson operating profits from insurance products fell 8% to $2.8 billion, with asset management operating profits of $9 million. 
and variable annuity sales up 13%. They also reported cash remittances from its operating companies of $771 million, which was 47% lower than 2019, reflecting non-remittance of any cash from Jackson and less coming through from the Asian business. And the PRU also noted a LCSM ratio of 328%, reflecting a surplus of $11 billion, up from $9.5 billion a year ago. Overall operating profits up 2% to $283 million. The group announced a final dividend of 10.73 cents per share, taking the full year total to 16.10 cents per share. They also announced that the demerger of the US of the Jackson business is expected to complete in the second quarter of 2021. That would seem logical separating the high growth Asian or the higher growth, it depends what you sort of what we're measuring growth on, but the higher growth Asian business from the slower, more mature US division. And that had already happened with M&G, which is now a separate company, which we'll come on to talk to in a, about in a minute, which happened in the UK a couple of years ago in, tw- in late 2019. I suppose it's probably the longer term growth and demand in the emerging markets in the Asian division with the double digit growth of the company with a demand for the pr- Prudential's insurance products. And obviously, it's not like the UK or so the rest of Europe, where there's a lot of social security or sort of healthcare. So there is that sort of, there's that growing demand for life and health insurance in the Asian market. At the moment, the price to book for the uh, for Prudentials currently stands at three, and that's compared with a 10-year average of 2.7. Sam, do you have any thoughts about Prudential as a company or any of the numbers or any of those highlights that have come out uh, from the company in the full year results? I found it very difficult to understand. I just find it a difficult. I mean, for example, you mentioned the LCSM ratio. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what that is. So if we have a look, it's defined as the local capital summation method. No idea what that is. I mean, it's just an insurance company, isn't it? I think they are quite difficult to value. It looks quite cheap. It's at a P ratio of 12.24. But for me, it's just going straight in the too hard pile. The too hard pile. What about you? Yeah, it's, I, I wouldn't pretend to understand all of the, the sort of how insurance businesses work. It's certainly not in my field of expertise. It doesn't appear expensive, but at the same time, I suppose if you don't understand it, you'd have to be wary about investing in it. The overall strategy on surface sounds sensible, I think. I guess a lot of people who might be interested in investing in the Prudential would be interested in that emerging market side of the business rather than the more sort of mature US business that's operating in what is a challenge in a sort of annuity market. I guess the question is how much value is tied up there as well. When that's when they do IPO that side of the business, how much do they get for it? But I think that's been the Prudential strategy so far. M&G, which was formerly part of the Prudential, they also came out with their full year results. And it was really the Prudential sort of asset ma- UK asset management and life insurance business that they were spinning out there. That happened in 2019. I think the shares there are trading for about 
just over two pounds. It's got a market cap of about 5.9 billion. I can run through the results quickly. So from their savings and asset management side of the business, they've reported full year assets under management and administration of 232 billion, which was up 7.6% year on year. The growth had been driven almost entirely by market movements and the acquisition of Eccentric with 6.6 billion outflow across the segment, driven by 12.1 billion, this is in pounds, sorry, of outflows in the retail asset management part of the business. The division also reported underlying operating income of 1.2 billion, down 4.5% year on year, together with an increase of operating expenses, meant operating profit fell 30%, 332 million. A lower income reflects decline in assets under management and administration in the retail asset management side of the business. Meanwhile, the heritage business, which includes the annuities with profits funds, down 3.3% year on year as benefits from changes to longevity assumptions failed to offset lower investment returns. Underlying profit fell 7%, 699 million, reflecting lower levels of insurance reserve releases during the year. Underlying capital generation during 2020 was 577 million, down from 26.3% on 2019. And efforts to include to uh, improve the balance sheet efficiency meant non-underlying capital generation came in at 735 million for total capital generation of 995 million, which is down 34.1% year on year. As a result, M&G finished the year with a solvency, a solvency two ratio of 182%, which was an improvement on 2019, where they had 176%, and a capital surplus of 4.8 billion, compared with 4.5 billion in 2019. And as I said before, it's got a market cap of just under 6 billion. I think the latest, just checking now, is 5.7 billion. And in terms of valuation, it has a price to earnings of 9.1 and a dividend yield of 8.6%. In terms of the structure, just reading around the business a bit, in terms of the structure, it's got the two main businesses, which is the M&G Asset Management and what is now a closed book of UK annuities business. And the plan with that is to sell the legacy annuities to Rothsay Life, releasing some future profits up front and freeing it from I suppose the risks associated with life insurance and leaving it with a, a more capital light asset management business. And then I suppose as an asset manager, it would be the clients taking the risk more than the company, which is obviously the reverse with the annuity business. Fees, I suppose, are always with these, uh, sort of almost like as we talked about with Rathbones and Schroders, come under pressure especially with sort of low-cost passive investing. The results seem to be relatively well-received by the market and shares are up about 10% since the results came out. Is your position similar to Prudential, Sam? I mean, I just thought the results were pretty bad. Yeah. So, I mean, it, <laughs> okay. it just, it, I, I yeah. wouldn't really be it, you, you think the results are bad and you don't in, you, and understanding of the business is limited. I, I feel like I could understand that. I, if I took a look at it, I'd probably be able to understand that okay. better than Prudential. But we've seen the, it looks like the chairman took time, has taken time off to recover from it, stress. Stress, stress, yeah. I'm yeah, not no, that's right. 
because I think I think it was I think it was one of those retail one of the retail funds they had they had to close it the property and one. I'm, yes that's it sorry property one they had to close it and it, it's still I think it's been closed for over a year now and it's still not been reopened I mean it, it is very cheap and I guess with something like that I don't see it going to zero I think there is yeah. there, there will be a flaw but I I've no idea what that would be and it's not I'd rather I'd rather look at growing businesses <laughs> yes well okay yeah and I suppose that would lead you back more to prudential and like you say it's it's not one that you sort of feel that you'd have any expertise in sort of analyzing I suppose but in terms of what prudential had been having this Jackson division in the US having M&G as part of it the growth is really in the Asian side of the business. And that's what they're sort of, they're spinning out Jackson and they've spun out uh, M&G. So I suppose if you were to look at it out of what could be soon three companies, it would probably be more the Prudential that you might might be interested in. Might's a very strong word. Okay, 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 fine. If it's sustained, it's got a, a perspective, it's got a very decent dividend yield. Yeah, but that, I mean, that yield suggests it won't be sustained. Yeah, yeah, it's, I think, I think it, it'll be an interesting one to, to see what happens, really, but you won't I'm be investing. <laughs> well, it, it, early last year, I think it went, it's about half, well, not quite half of what it is now. So it, it, it has recovered a lot since the, the lows of COVID. But yeah, it's a long way from health. I suppose is probably what you could say about it. So it must have dropped to a PE of about four then at one point in March. Let's just, ha- I'll, I'll just check the share price. But it dropped below a pound, it's £2.20 now. So if it's at a PE of nine now, it must have must have got to about four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> would, you, <laughs> would you have seen a value play at that point? I, to be honest, at a PE of four, I mean, it's... They have to decline, earnings have to decline pretty quickly for you to not do well at that, I think. Yeah, yeah. But it didn't stay at four for very long. No, no. And there were, there were arguably, well, there were a lot more quality businesses that may have not been at price to earnings of four, but were definitely more attractive back in April. Mm. Okay. So what's the last company? Is it our US company this week? It is. So it's Mercado Libre. So it's actually a Latin American company, but it's listed in the US. So Mercado Libre, if anyone doesn't know them, you can think of them as the Amazon of Latin America and also the PayPal of Latin America. For full disclosure, I am a shareholder and a very happy one at that. (laughs) Um, So they've announced their fourth quarter and full year results. All these figures are in dollars, by the way. Some of the highlights were net revenues of 1.3 billion, which was up 148.5% year over year on an FX neutral basis. 15.9 billion total payment volume, up 134.4% year over year on an FX neutral basis. 6.6 billion gross merchandise volume, up 109.7% year over year on an FX neutral basis. They highlighted for the quarter that unique active users grew 71.3% year over year, reaching 74 million. Gross merchandise volume grew to 6.6 billion, 
which represented a 69.6% increase in USD and 109.7% increase on an FX neutral basis. Items sold reached 229.4 million, increasing 109.5% year over year. Mobile gross merchandise volumes grew 271.4% year over year on an FX neutral basis, reaching 72.1% of gross merchandise volume. Total payment volume through Mercado Pago, which is, uh, pay, think of it as, as their version of PayPal, reached 15.9 billion, a year over year increase of 83.9% in USD and 134.4% on an FX neutral basis. Total payment transactions increased 131% year over year, totaling 659.3 million transactions for the quarter. Off-platform total payment volume grew 93.3% year-over-year in USD and 154.4% year-over-year on an FX neutral basis, reaching 9.2 billion, while payment transactions reached 501.7 million, a year-over-year increase of 139.6%. Online payments total payment volume grew 142.9% year-over-year on an FX neutral basis and continued expanding its merchant base. Net revenues, 1.3 billion, year over year increase of 96.9 million in USD and 148.5 million on an FX neutral basis. Commerce revenues increased 124.2% year over year in USD, reaching 872.9 million, while fintech revenues increased 59.5% year over year in USD, reaching 454.4 million. Gross profit was 489 million with a margin of 36.8%. And that's decreased from 45.7% in the fourth quarter of 2019. So I do think it's worth going into that in a bit more detail because that is quite an important metric. Yeah, so they, they put the decrease in gross profit down to lower product margins during the holiday season or they've, they've dropped prices during the holiday season. And they also have invested in excess capacity to ensure that they can continue, ensure best, best in class service levels on their managed network during the peak shopping season. So really, it's, it's dropped because they're gearing up to do more business, basically. So I would expect it to go back up to previous levels over time. I wouldn't expect it to stay there, is my opinion. Total operating expenses were 514.2 million, and that only increased 36% year over year, which is a lot less than the revenue increases. As a percentage of revenue, operating expenses were 38.7 million compared to 55.9 million in the fourth quarter of 2019. Loss from operations was 25.1 million compared with a loss of 68.9 million in the prior year. And as a percentage of revenues, income from operations was negative 1.9%. So for the full year, they had 132.5 million active users, and that was up from 74.2 million in 2019. Gross merchandise volume was 20.926 billion. That was up from 13.997 billion the year before. Total payment volume was 49.756 billion. That was up from 28.389 billion the year before. And there was quite a few interesting points in the slides that I want to cover as well. So Mexico has now surpassed Argentina as their second largest geography. And their FX neutral net revenues are maintaining momentum, which given the growth rates is incredible really so in the three largest markets which are argentina brazil and mexico argentina q3 2020 the net revenue growth rate was 
260%, and that's dropped 229% in the fourth quarter. In Brazil, Q3, it was 112%, and that's up to 120% in the fourth quarter. And in Mexico, it was 140%, and that's up to 155% in the fourth quarter. So in two of those three markets, growth is still actually accelerating. And for the one where it isn't, I can forgive them for 229% growth, even if it's a slight <laughs> decrease. So in terms of the valuation? Yeah, because I mean, they are incredible numbers. I think it, it is an incredible business, but this is, this is the big thing, isn't it? Go on, what are you guessing? Uh, what am I getting? Oh my goodness. Price to sales, have a guess at that, because it doesn't have earnings. 15? That's a, that's a pretty good guess. Order, what is it? We'll get to, so they've got a market cap of we'll 71, get to that. Okay. Yeah. 71.67 billion market cap. And that puts them at a price of sales of 18. 18, okay. I so I, I was thinking it's a bit a little bit cheaper than it actually is. Yeah. You want this. <laughs> I mean, I actually thought that a price of sales of 18, that's possibly I know it's a lot, but when you look at a lot of the price to sales ratios of a lot of the other US listed tech companies, it's actually quite low given those growth rates. And um, I think that's for a couple of reasons. So the first one is the margins. So they, they are a bit lower. So they're now in the 30s. Really, you want, I'd want those margins to come back up over time, the gross margins. I'd want to see them at least in the 50s or 60s, or hopefully in the 50s or 60s. I think as the Mercado Pago element of the business becomes larger, that, that would happen. So that's, that's going to be a much higher margin anyway. The other reason is just the countries they're operating in. So, I mean, the numbers are unbelievable. I mean, they're growing, let's call it 150% year over year. But then when that's translated into USD, because of the currency problems those countries are facing, you're only getting about 100% growth year over year. And that is a big risk to the business because it needs to grow a lot just to keep up with the currency devaluations. So mm -hmm. I think that's why that price of sales of is 18, which I think is that, 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 that's why I think it's what I consider quite a reasonable price to sales ratio because of the risk baked in there. So any thoughts, John? Oof. I don't think I'd be brave enough to buy it, but... And I suppose that this is this is the dilemma with all with a lot of these sort of growth companies, well, US listed growth growth stocks, that they're never going to be cheap. So I think like you were talking about with Flosser, you just accept that and accept that you may have a very volatile ride with a share price if you believe that this is you know a very high quality business yet to make profits, but you know, in the future could well, it is the dominant player already, but could turn that growth into, you know, huge profits like a company like Amazon has done in the US. Mm. But then if you get it at a price sales of 18, if it doubles again next year. <laughs> it's half that, yeah. It's already at nine. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a steal, yeah. isn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Price uh, giving I, it away. I, I take your point. I take your point. But and I, I, so, okay, do you have, you own shares in the company? Would you be buying... Would you be topping up on your position at this current share price and valuation? Mm, uh, it I mean, half, it could be half eight. It could be nine next year, sir. I mean, yeah, but it's up about, I mean, it's actually pulled back about 25% from its peak, but I think it must be up about six X. So it's quite a large 
part of my portfolio. So I wouldn't, I think I wouldn't be adding to it at the minute, but I wouldn't, I'd, I wouldn't be against initiating a position at these prices, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think that's... But you, you do have to accept there is there is a lot of risk there. But yeah. that's why the returns have been so good. Yeah. It's got... If the, if the next set of results or the next update was slightly disappointing, it's got a long way to fall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, if those numbers start slowing... Or not start slowing because they've accelerated because of COVID... It it was maybe it it wasn't growing quite that fast pre-COVID, although it was still very impressive numbers. But I think yeah. if those if those numbers start slowing down more than would be expected, then yeah, you, that price soon comes down. Of the seven stocks we've talked about today, Prudential, London Stock Exchange, Schroders, Rathbones, Mercado Libre, Rentskill, and M and G. If you had to buy one, which one would you be going for? I think I like. I suppose I quite like the London Stock Exchange, but perhaps a little bit expensive. Probably one of the wealth managers, Schroders or Rathbones, possibly Schroders, but it'd really be a toss-up between those two. I think. What about you? I'd go with Rathbones. Uh, out of all of the companies. Out of all of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, Fair I thought I thought it was ridiculously cheap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone who's interested, I mentioned it a few months ago. There's uh, going to be a FinTwit summit where it's basically prominent. It's really prominent US growth investors on Twitter. They've got together and arranged a little, com- a little, a little summit. Basically, that's sales for that are now live, and it's like ten dollars or something, very cheap. So it's the twentieth, and it doesn't look like anyone will have anything else to do on the twentieth. So yeah, the, the lineup of speakers does look excellent. So if for anyone who's, who follows them already, like it's, it's people like Brian Feraldi and Beth Kindig and Simon Erickson. It's actually a few, a few of the names that we talked about in the interview with Flosser last week, but there are some really, really excellent speakers and it is extremely reasonably priced. So if you want to find out more, we don't have any affiliation. If you are interested, it's fintwitsummit.com, F-I-N-T-W-I-T, S-U-M-M-I-T.com. I think that's everything oh, now. Unless yeah. there's anything else you want to add, John? No, I don't think I have anything, uh, anything more to add this week. Well, thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you again next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.